Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Philadelphia Freedoms, Michael Awkward. Michael Awkward, author of Philadelphia Freedoms, Black American Trauma, Memory, and Culture After King. How old were you when Martin Luther King was killed? I was eight years old. Uh, I write in the book about the fact that I had just gotten an operation on my right eye. I have strabismus, my eyes, what they typically think of as a lazy eye. And I was in the hospital uh, getting an operation on the day he died. And I was coming back in a taxi cab with my mother and I think one of my sisters when they told me that he died. Do you remember what adults around you were were talking about it, how they talked about it? Um, I don't fully recall a lot of what was going on in terms of how the adults in my community were dealing with it. I remember my mother being very sad about it. Um, I was at that point a little self-absorbed. I was walking around with a patch on my eye uh, trying to get uh, my lazy eye to act correctly. And I do remember the funeral, um, which seemed like it was on all day on what I think was a Monday. Um, and I remember um, remember the hearse being drawn uh, down the streets of Atlanta. And, but my recollections of King take me back uh, a little earlier than that. Um, the fact that part of the reason that King's dying was so important to me was that my mother used to play his album, uh, the I Have a Dream album, which had that um, miraculous American speech. And she played it virtually every Sunday morning until I was 12 or 13 years old. And so he was a presence in the house in a lot of ways. Um, she told me that he was important in ways that eight-year-olds um, can vaguely comprehend, but maybe can't comprehend as, as well as, as older people could. And so his dying meant a lot because I knew he was an important man. I had heard this speech a number of times. I admired his voice uh, as much as I admired his message, which sort of was lost on an eight-year-old who was more worried about picking, picking boogers than he was worried about uh, uh, civil rights and, and equality. But I remember my mother insisting that we understand that he was an important figure and that what he was doing and, and the sacrifices that he made were really important. Were you taught anything about <coughs> Martin Luther King when you were going to school in later years? Uh, no, I think I'm too old uh, for King to have made it into the curriculum. Um, we learned a little bit about slavery, um, but he wasn't a subject of, um, of a lot of uh, inquiry when I was in high school or when I was in college. I did read a lot about him when I was in graduate school and 
have been, because of my early interest in him and my mother's early interest in him, thinking about the meaning of his life and his legacy and where we've come as a nation as a consequence of his efforts and a variety of other people's efforts and where we still have to go. But no, we didn't learn a whole lot. I mean, my, I have children now who um, tell me that they learn every year. Uh, well, when they were in elementary school and middle school and high school, who learned every year about King's life and his legacy. How is America different now because Martin Luther King was killed? Um, in my estimation, we have reached a point that we've never been in as, as a society where we think highly as a nation about the contributions of a black American to um, not only the civil rights of black people, but to the uh, actualization of the dreams of American society, the dreams of freedom, the dreams of equality, the dreams of the pursuit of happiness. Um, I think that before King's assassination, the possibility of the nation acknowledging a black man or a black person in those particular ways was, was very minimal and certainly didn't happen that I can think of. Um, I think that his death and the fact that his, um, his uh, birthday has become a national holiday has forced us to think more expansively about what it means to be American and about the importance of struggling for freedom and struggling to actualize the goals of the American Revolution and a variety of other wars that we have been a part of. So I think that the change, one of the changes this has been in, been in the acceptance of black Americans as part of the fabric of the nation. Um, I do think, however, that one of the detrimental facts of his assassination and the ways in which he's been embraced in the society is that we have stopped thinking as much about the struggles that the people he was most concerned with, the poor, uh, the disenfranchised, the struggles that they have in terms of making it into the mainstream of American culture. I think that we have abandoned the underclass, we've abandoned the poor, we tend now in ways that he never would have abided to think that they are responsible for their degradation, for their oppression, responsible for their poverty. Um, and I do think that soon after he died, although it was happening um, in the years right before that, we as a nation stopped being as concerned about the underclass. Um, and I, we see that lack of concern about the underclass being manifested in every political campaign since then, right. where to talk about poverty is horrible and every American who the politicians are trying to reach are members of the quote-unquote middle class. Why, why is that? Why less interest in that? Um, I, I, I don't know that I know the answer to that. I do think that part of what's happened since the 1960s is the sense that comes mainly from people on the right wing of the political spectrum that um, we tried the poverty programs. They did not work. They 
in essence have made American society, according to the right-wing perspective, worse than it was before. The notion that people who grow up on welfare, for example, are taught not to strive energetically to achieve um, wealth and success in American society. And I think that the politicians on the left who are trying to be more centrist in their their perspectives understand that people in the middle class don't care as much as they used to about uh, social uplift. Um, I think we've become much more of a dog-eat-dog -dog nation. I think the notion that we have a mission to help other people, um, which includes our mission to help people in the United States who need to be uplifted, but also the idea that we need to help people in other lands uh, who are struggling with dictatorships and other forms of oppression. It's not politically popular anymore to think those things, to run on those platforms. And I think as a consequence of that, politicians stay as far away from those subjects as possible. The sense that I get really strongly is the poor are poor in the estimation of the people on the right and also to some degree in the, the estimation of the people on the left because of their own inadequacies and poor choices. And it's a hard uh, argument to make uh, in the United States after the 1970s that we ought to still remain concerned about uplifting uh, people who are poor. What's the counter-argument to what, what you said about, well, we, we tried uh, poverty programs, anti-poverty programs, they don't work, and we still have poor people. What's the counter-argument to that? Uh, I don't know that the counter-argument is an easy one to make, but I think that the counter-argument has to be something having to do with the changes the technological changes that have happened in, in the United States since then. It is now almost shameful in a lot of people's estimation to not have certain gadgets and uh, technologies that quote unquote everybody has. If you don't have your own cell phone, if you don't have your own iPod and your own Xbox, uh, you are somehow or another not acceptable within the firmament of the United States. And the, it has made the desire to own things, the, the materialist um, pursuits of the United States so much more central to who everybody is um, than I think it used to be in the, in the 60s and the 70s when we thought about why people were poor and we tried to think about how to, to change their poverty. Um, so I think because of the technological expanse that's gone on in the last um, 50 years or so, I think it is no longer acceptable in a lot of people's estimation to be poor or to not have. And to be one of those who don't have means that you are always thought of as being minor or lesser or not acceptable in a lot of ways. And I think that that's led to a number of things. Uh, the lack of interest on the part of some people in seeing the gradual uh, transformation of the self that schooling can do, for example, as being an option. Uh, it may or may not have led to the increase in the criminalization of all sorts of minimal uh, crimes that go on in the United States and the expanse of the, of the prison industrial complex, as it's called, because we don't, we want on the one hand to promote these 
these items to buy, but we don't want to think about the consequences of those, that promotion for people who do not have and do not have the means to, to get. Now, you say, in, <coughs> right in your introduction, I began researching this book in fall 1996, soon after I finished Scenes of Instruction. You were on this program for Scenes of yep. Instruction back then. What took so long, 1996 to now? <sighs> well, I wrote a couple books in the interim, uh, but mainly I was struggling uh, with, I don't know how much I, I want to or should talk about it, but I was struggling professionally um, as a consequence of having returned to, I, I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania and I returned there as a professor in 1996. Uh, it did not go particularly well for a lot of reasons, some of which I talk about in the book. And what happened essentially is that I lost some confidence in myself. Um, I felt trapped uh, intellectually and socially in a variety of other things. And I think it may be fair to say, although I, again, I don't know if I want to go in the specifics of it here, it's fair to say that I was sort of traumatized by the experience of returning home. I'm a native of Philadelphia, uh, had not lived in Philadelphia for a long time and came back and had a kind of rude awakening uh, to the meanings of my return for other people. And I went through a long time of not being able to work, not having confidence in the importance of writing and the importance of scholarship. and. I started this book in 1996 in part because of which I was talking about and mentioned in the in the uh, in Philadelphia Freedoms as my Philly book. I talk I started it at that time, but it was just really really hard for me to figure out ways to push on and 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 move through it. I kept doing the research. I vividly recall going to the Philadelphia. Uh, public library up on the parkway to do research about uh, Philadelphia basketball in the 1960s and looking through the, the microfilm of, of Daily News and Inquirer and Bulletin newspapers, but writing was really, really hard for me. So um, I left the University of Pennsylvania in 2003 and started feeling a little bit more liberated, got some other work done. And I kept feeling as though this book was nagging at me. I wanted, it to, I wanted to finish it. Um, and so I started writing it again in earnest in about 2004, 2005, and was able to finish it at maybe around 2010 or 11. What's it about? Um, what I try to do is to talk about the, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably the hardest question to answer because <laughs> I suspect it's about a lot of things, but it's, I, I'm trying to, to see if I can talk about ways to understand black American identity that is connected specifically to the traumas of slavery. Um, I've had a theory for a long time, and a number of other people have similar sorts of theories or talk about it in similar ways, that slavery still matters. Um, 
in the formulation of black identity in the United States. Um, and I, part of what I was trying to do in the book is to talk about how black identity was both shaped by slavery and Jim Crow and its residual effects on black American individuals and communities, but also to talk about how that notion of identity was challenged by or changed by or informed by the advances of the civil rights movement on the one hand, but as importantly by uh, Martin Luther King's assassination and its implications. Um, what I see being the case is that black Americans are stuck in this strange position or and have this strange divide on the one hand. There is this sense of black Americans as having this deep investment in the United States as a, an idea, as a formulation, as an institution. And so this deep faith in its principles of de democracy and equal opportunity and fairness. And to, I need to say this in the city that we are now situated in this notion of brotherly and sisterly love on the one hand, but on the other hand, this notion that, that the promises of American society never were fulfilled for black people in the United States because of slavery, because of Jim Crow, and because of sub the subsequent residue of, of, of racism in the society. And I wanted to think about what it meant to place King at the center of an, an analysis of black American identity that says on the one hand, we are now legally members of the United States, that, that the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of the early 60s meant that discrimination of the sort that black people faced before that was no longer possible. But then to think about what it was the reality and, that it, and it seemed to me to be the case that we were still struggling to figure out how to be, how to belong, how to make ourselves uh, unambiguous Americans in the ways that some other people who come into the United States are able to do. So I wanted to think about the ambiguity or the, the ambivalence that black Americans feel about, on the one hand, those doctrines and those, those uh, texts that we as Americans are told to hold, to hold dear, and on the other hand, to think about what it means to, to be told as a consequence of the civil rights movement that we are now freer um, and to have that question of freedom still lingering in the mind and in the realities of our lives. You are now a professor at University of Michigan? Yeah. What do you teach? I teach in the English department there and sometimes in Afro-American and African studies. Um, I've been a scholar of gender for a long time. I, I am a, a quote-unquote male feminist, and some of, the, some of the teaching that I do has to do with the subject of gender and race and its intersections. I also um, have been interested in the question of autobiography a long, for a long time. Um, that's when we met for the first time in, in response to to, to the autobiographical text I wrote, so I still teach that. Uh, I'm currently, I'm getting ready to teach a course about black masculinity after King's assassination and to think about 
how it's changed and how, especially how it gets represented. Do, do your students and, <coughs> and your daughters, for that matter, see these issues differently than you do or, or your parents' generation did? Um, I think it, it's, a, it, it's an, uh, an odd uh, split in a kind of way. I think that my students, especially in the beginning of my career, a little less recently, but in the beginning of my career, my students kept wondering, for example, was it possible for a black American to write a text to do a film about being a human being in which their race wasn't a central issue. Um, my, my kids understand race as being central to who they are. I think that they think of it as less of a burden than I do, or a burden in a different sort of way. I mean, I grew up in the, the 1960s and 70s and still have percolating in my mind the notion, you know, the, the um, efforts to, dis to, to um, desegregate uh, schools and other institutions and my own participation in the minor though it was in those, those efforts to desegregate. So I think that for me it's still a kind of pressing issue and impacts the ways in which I look at a lot of things. My kids, a little less so. Um, but they, I grew up poor, and they grew up very comfortable in middle class, and I think it made, that makes a difference in cer certain kinds of ways. But I do get a sense, and it, it sort of it pops up and then g diminishes uh, from time to time, but I do get the sense that uh, black and white and, and brown and, and other students in the, in the university are as concerned about issues of race and certainly concerned about issues of gender, but the nature of their concerns tend to be a little different. I think that they have the notion that I don't really fully operate in terms of that somehow or another, through some efforts, the world can change significantly so that equality can be achieved. Um, I am a little, a little less skeptical about that than they are, though. What does it say about America that uh, it elected a black male as a president? Uh, <laughs> I think it says a whole lot about America. Uh, it says a whole lot about that black male who was elected because he is, he is in a lot of ways uh, incomparable. Uh, it's hard to imagine another black male being uh, elected who didn't have his particular skills and gifts and his life story. Um, but I do think that it says that we are infinitely more willing to look, or at least a lot of us, not certainly not all of us, because I think we've seen overt racism connected to him uh, rear its ugly head in ways that I think that we are just, we, I think that a lot of, of us are relatively surprised about. Um, but I do think that, that the, the majority of Americans are much more interested in looking at the skills and talents and gifts that people bring to whatever it is that they are trying to do um, than they are at looking and being blinded by the implications of their, their color or their gender or anything. Um, that's not to say I think that those problems are gone because they're not gone and they, they probably won't be gone in my lifetime. Um, but I do think that we are more willing 
I, I don't want to use that content of you know, the character line that too many people want to use that King first coined in 1963, but I do think that we're more interested in doing that or ab more able to do that. Um, and our ability to do that matched up with a figure who sort of forced and compelled us to. He is, um, he has an, a unique American story. I think he, the fact that his father is African and not, and was not the product himself of slavery makes him, makes him a little bit more palatable to people who might find uh, a figure like Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson to just name two black people who ran for president before him. Uh, he, the, he seems more palatable, palatable to, to them than uh, those people would. Uh, you, all, you write in your book about <coughs> Oprah Winfrey and Toni Morrison, and, uh, but Oprah Winfrey has been a big star at the top of the heap, one of the most successful business women in the country, maybe the most successful. Does it say anything about race relations that she is able to maintain that level for so many years? She's a uh, fascinating figure. I, I can't say that I love her. I can't say that I admire her as much as some people that I know do, but I do think that she contributed to the transformation of American society, that King is uh, also contributed in a lot of ways too, and that she asked, she was able to tap into something that was really important in American culture, and that is the fact that a lot of people are struggling psychologically with a lot of wounds and a lot of difficulty. She presented those topics of of trauma and tragedy and, and oppression and, and molestation and poor body image and a variety of other things. She presented in a, in a way that suggested both a kind of seriousness but also a good humoredness. Uh, she made them infinitely more important for us to think about as a nation than we had otherwise. Um, I think that she is a has undergone since she's moved to her own cable network some difficulties and 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 tying precisely to the fact that the the question was whether or not we were willing to follow her in that venture too um and a lot of what people wrote about the beginning of her career as a cable mogul had to do with the fact that her shows were not aimed sufficiently at a black audience um, and the increased success of the network has had a lot to do with the fact that she has decided uh, smartly perhaps um, but she's decided that she's going to do more programming uh, that features black people in it um, so that network has turned around in part because she was willing to embrace an identity that she clearly uh, had embraced before, but didn't characterize her solely when she was a talk show host in the ways that that um, some people might say now characterizes what's going on in that show. Um, I wrote about <coughs> Oprah in large part, and I, I must also say that I've taught some courses about Oprah Winfrey's book club. So um, I've been thinking about Oprah seriously for a while. Um, but I wrote about Oprah Winfrey in 
the connection with the Philadelphia premiere of Beloved, um, which I went to, um, the, the, of the film Beloved, and wrote about it because of the fact that it was filmed in and around Philadelphia primarily, and she remained the sort of figure in the city as kind of a, uh, an embraced, adopted daughter of the city. Um, and so it was, for me, it was important to think about Oprah Winfrey as a figure um, to, because she had thought about and talked about slavery, in part because of the fact that her message seems to be where people who are marginalized or victimized are concerned, that they have to figure out ways to get over and transcend their victimization and marginalization because slavery for her was such an important topic um, that she decided to buy the rights to Beloved and thought filming it was really, really central and important. But also because of the fact that her vision of the importance of slavery in contemporary America is so different than the vision of the author of that, that novel, Toni Morrison. So it seemed interesting for me to think about what slavery means and how it's represented um, in, in where the book is concerned, a late 20th century perspective, and to think about those two figures as being in conflict with one another about those issues. Your book has a few chapters of of <coughs> specific themes. One is the, the Philadelphia 76ers playing a game in the wake of the Martin Luther King assassination. Mm -hmm. Another is on move. Another we talked about Oprah and other Philadelphia international records. What's the thread that ties them together? How did you choose what topics to focus on to illustrate your point? Um, in s to be quite frank, I could give you an academic uh, bit of malarkey that would, would <laughs> suggest why, why and how these, these uh, issues tied together. What I wanted to do was to recognize the arbitrariness of the choices that we make and, um, as scholars or as people who are concerned about what's going on. I wanted to choose the issues that were the most pertinent to me that, that I thought were also more pertinent or could be said to be pertinent to other people but certainly representative of issues that black people in the, in the United States generally and people in Philadelphia in particular were struggling with in the last four decades of the 20th century. So I chose, um, for example, the basketball game. It was, a, it was a playoff game between the then defending champion Philadelphia 76ers and the Boston Celtics who were the long-standing champions of the NBA because it suggested, to, well, the game was going to be played the night after King died. King died on April 4th, and then the game was scheduled to be played on the 5th. And there was a whole lot of consternation about whether or not that game should be played. Out of respect for King, uh, thinking about the sensitivities of the players who had participated in some way or another in the civil rights movement and whether or not the fans were going to be interested in seeing a game, but also because of the fact that riots were breaking out in response to King's death all over the United States in a hundred cities and there were countless millions of dollars of damage. Um, and I wanted to think about what it, what it meant for that 
game to have been played for the officials of the United, of the 76ers and the Boston Celtics to have made the decision to play it and also to think about it through the lens of a particular basketball player who wrote a memoir. Um, the player was Chet Walker, who played for the 76ers from 64 to 69, uh, who went on to be a star player in the, for the Chicago Bulls. But he wrote a memoir in which he talks largely about the fact that as a black man, he felt as though he was never able to assert himself in interracial situations, even though he was a star athlete. And the pinnacle or the, 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 the negative point of that lack of ability to assert himself um, emotionally and otherwise in interracial situations came when he thought that it was a great, um, horrible um, thing to, have to, to play a game uh, on the eve of King's assassination, yet he was unable to articulate his feelings sufficiently to keep the game from being played. The players voted in favor of playing? Uh, yeah, but it was a sort of rigged vote, at least according to Chet Walker. What I remember him saying is that they voted 7-2 to two with some abstentions to play, but they were all in the stadium at that point. The crowds were starting to come into the, into the then new spectrum, which no longer exists. Um, and they talked about um, the fact that they were afraid that, play, that the fans were going to riot. The irony of that particular formulation, given the fact that riots were actually going on in the United States in all sorts of cities and that the rioters were primarily black, the fact that the fan base of the 76ers in, in that stadium in, in South Philadelphia were overwhelmingly black, I mean, oh, excuse me, overwhelmingly white, and the notion that, that these whites were going to riot because these black males had made this decision was, was sort of laughable. Um, but the notion of rioting was in the air, the notion of, of a kind of energetic, violent response against terrible situations was in the air. And he, Chet Walker saw it as part of his responsibility to fulfill his contract, um, but he never felt good about it. And the, the, the whole thrust of that autobiography was to talk about his coming to some sense of agency or some sense of power. Um, over the course of his life, despite the fact that he had made this choice that continued to traumatize him to participate in a game that he thought shouldn't have been played. You also write about a James Brown concert yeah. that took place in New York the same night. Yeah, it was in, actually it was in Boston. Oh, Boston. Um, yeah, there is a now famous story that James Brown saved Boston from burning because he decided to go through with a concert that was scheduled to take place on the same night that the Boston Celtics were playing the 76ers in Philadelphia. And part of what he did was to go on radio. He owned some radio stations at that point and told the black listeners to remain calm, which seemed to help in some of the places that he owned radio uh, stations. But he also went through with the concert um, despite some politi political machinations and, and other problems. And this concert was aired, even though it wasn't supposed to be aired on public radio, um, excuse me, on public television in Boston. Uh, they sent the word out on the radio that people should remain in their homes to watch this essentially free concert. And so uh, 
in the actual stadium there was about 2,000 people, but a number of people were watching this live concert on television, um, watching the mayor of, of Boston, Kevin White, um, appeal for calm and, and um, publicly recognize both the efforts of Martin Luther King but also James Brown. And according to James Brown uh, and a number of other people, Brown's concert, his pronouncements during the concert, the notion of the necessity to keep calm, um, led to Boston being one of the cities along with Philadelphia that did not riot um, on, in the eve of King's assassination. You have another chapter on um, Gamble and Huff and Philadelphia International Records, nostalgic black musical formulations of masculinity and the patriarchal family. And you said you, some, some of what you teach is gender politics and, and the, the black male mm -hmm. role. Uh, how does that fit in with Philadelphia International Records? Um, the during the the beginning of the 1970s and also um, starting in the 1960s, there was a lot of attention pay, play, paid in um, rhythm and blues music to the question of the parent. Um, in Philadelphia and Philadelphia-based uh, records. Um, there were a number of songs that were being produced, but it was happening in Motown. It was happening in uh, Motown with Papa Was a Rolling Stone. It was happening in Stax Records with uh, Patches by Clarence Thomas. It was happening with Gladys Knight and the Pips and Papa Don't Swear I Declare. And it was happening with James Brown, who made a song called Papa Don't Take No Mess. Um, in Philadelphia, there were songs like Sadie by the Spinners, which talks about a mother and her efforts to, to keep the family alive. but the quintessential song, perhaps, of mother love uh, from the 1970s was the song by the Intruders, I'll Always Love My Mama. And it's a song that just sort of talks about the mother's sacrifice. And at some point in the, the album version of the song, there's a kind of break. And after the break, the, the members of the group who grew up in North Philly, the group's name is the, the Intruders, start talking about their lives. And one of the lead singer of the group talks about how wonderful his mother was. And one of his friends asked the question, what about pop? And the lead singer then goes on to admit in the spoken word part of the song that seems improvised that his father was running around the streets being as irresponsible as the kids were being. Um, I, I, I wanted to think about what it meant for people at that time to be thinking about the question of the, the father, to be thinking about it in the context of a very important and controversial study that came out in the 1960s called the Moynihan Report that talked about the marginalization of black men in families um, and the consequences of that marginalization. It's controversial in part because it's seen as, as utterly patriarchal and utterly sexist. Um, but the song that takes up the most space in that particular analysis um, is the song Family Reunion by the OJs, which gets played over and over again in family re reunions around the country. Um, but that 
seem to me to be at odds, its patriarchal emphasis seemed to me to be at odds with uh, the period in which it was written. Um, I think about the, the 70s as, as sort of the birth of modern feminism in the United States. And the song itself is so insistent on saying that the father is the head and the leader and the guide of the, of the, guider of the family in ways that just seem to, be, to make the song kind of reactionary. And I wanted to think about what that song meant and the sort of nostalgia in the song for this notion of a, of a patriarchal black family which, as far as I can tell, never actually existed in American society because of racism and slavery and Jim Crow and other things. You're right. Gamble's formulation of ideal familial roles cannot be seen as, seen as anything other than a reflection of male nostalgia for, in the words of Meek Bell, an idyllic past that never was. Yeah. It was is that a, a theme that w ran through Philadelphia International Records songs? Uh, I don't know if it was a theme that ran so much through the songs as it was in the ways that it that it runs through family reunion, but there's sense there is, the, the, there was a strong sense in that record company, uh, of a kind of male dominance of a male presence. Uh, the songs were often, um, well, I mean, I, I think the best way to say it is. Kenny Gamble himself, and I'm not saying anything out of school to say this. It, although he's done wonderful things both as a record producer and as a developer in Philadelphia and, and he has helped the community in a variety of ways, he has a very sort of traditional notion of male identity and male roles. And that notion of the family as being dominated by the father um, is certainly one that is um, present in that record and in some of the other records. Not all of them, but certainly some of them. Are there other songs that came out at the same time that show the opposite, the, the strong mother? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of strong mother songs. A lot of the songs at, uh, from that time have male sons uh, talking to their mothers. Um, a, a famous one by the Jackson 5, Mama, I Found That Girl, uh, the song Sadie that I mentioned before, um, the Jerry Butler song that was produced by Gamble and Huff called Only the Strong Survive, in which the mother is trying to tell the son that he needs to figure out ways to get over his broken heart and that there will be a lot of girls out there in the world, as she puts it, to, to help him get over his broken heart if he remains a nice guy. So there are a lot of what... Um, of what the scholar Brian Ward called mo calls mother songs that that were extant during that time, um, and interestingly, those mother songs typically never talk about or deal with the fact that uh, the father either isn't there or, or isn't a presence um, in the lives of these boys. How is it compared to music that's produced now in discussing gender roles? Um, I suspect that we have uh, reached a period of a kind of hyper-masculinization of black masculinity in contemporary hip-hop songs where there is 
no effort at all, however problematic it might be, to idealize the object of heterosexual male desire. I mean, gr women are objectified and, and tossed away and seen as property and as conquests in many of these songs in ways that are just utterly surprising for a naive person like me and utterly offensive, I think, so. Is there anything happening on the, the women's side of women singing songs of the female role? Uh, I, I'm sure there is. Um, I, I think I haven't been as attuned to thinking about that as a, as a subject, at least as, as it relates to contemporary um, music then as I used to be. And clearly there is, there is this sort of notion of female empowerment that you see being expressed in songs by people like Beyonce and maybe to some degree another by Rihanna and some other people, but um, I haven't thought as much about that as an issue. I want to ask you about a phrase that you have in here and you use it twice, black discursive monumentality. Is that one of those academic uh, it, it clearly is. I was trying to prove how smart I was. <laughs> um, but more than anything else, what I was trying to do is to think about the, what it means to be in a country where like so many other countries, there are monuments upon monuments upon monuments to the achievements and the sacrifices of Americans. Um, in and around Philadelphia, the, the monuments and the plaques and the, the, the efforts to recognize um, people who have contributed to American society and Philadelphia society are just um, even more than plentiful. What we don't have much in American society are national monuments or national efforts to recognize the suffering of black people who were slaves who contributed a great deal to the United States despite the fact and maybe because of the fact that their labor was not um, paid for. Um, slavery remains in the United States a kind of under-discussed if not undiscussed topic. And part of what I was trying to get at in terms of using that uh, phrase that I still like to some degree or another was the fact that, that because the physical monuments don't exist, but also because black American novelists and playwrights in particular were concerned beginning in the 1960s in, about making slavery a central subject, um, you see people talking about slavery monumentalizing slavery as a topic um, in their books in ways that it wasn't being monumentalized in the nation as a whole. And so I was, I was trying to find a way to think about the tension between the sort of absence on the American landscape of monuments to slaves. I mean, we'll, we're willing to monumentalize figures, including King, who we are able to say easily contribute to the actualization of the dreams of American society. Um, but we are not as willing to recognize our own implication in the, the bestial treatment of, of, of some people in part because of their skin color. So I was trying to think about that absence on the one hand, on the other hand, the fact that black American literature 
for a period seemed to be almost overly populated with discussions of and explorations of slavery. You, uh, it, it may be related to that. You talk about <coughs> with your wife visiting George Washington's house in the same block, a block away from Independence Hall, yeah. and it seemed like the two of you had different reactions to it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in Philadelphia. I used to go to Independence Park in, in, in part because it was peaceful, in part because it was such an impressive place. I could look in the window and see the Liberty Bell when it was still housed in, that, in Independence Hall. I, I knew I could see the chairs and I imagined Ben Franklin's butt imprint on one of the chairs and all of these things. And so I was used to the, to the grandeur of the landscape of commemoration in the city. Um, I was also used to the kind of absence of discussions of black American contributions to that landscape. Um, when my wife, who was raised in part by a father who told her over and over again about what it was like to grow up in the Deep South during the Jim Crow era, when she came to Philadelphia, uh, and well, one of the times that she visited, we went first to the president's house, which had just been, recently had been uh, turned into this wonderful exhibit, I think. Um, and we got to look down and see the quarters in which the slaves had lived. Um, she was overcome by it, at least in part because she could see all of this history around her. She knew where Independence Park was. She could see the Liberty Bell. Um, and she, the, the, the difficulty of recognizing that those things existed, those, those sort of staples of American freedom existed at, in the same place where these people were living in these really small and horrible quarters. Uh, with no will of their own to choose what they, they, they did whenever they wanted to do it was really, really emotionally difficult for her. And being the insensitive person that I sometimes am, despite the fact that the skies were blue and everything was wonderful, I decided, well, we'll go to the Constitution Center. Because one of the reasons that we came to Philadelphia was we, I wanted to see the space in which uh, Barack Obama had given his, space on, his speech on race. Uh, it was why we had come here, the, I end the book talking about that. And we got to the Constitution Center. She was sort of overcome, uh, but we got there. I figured she would be okay. Uh, and then she saw the preamble of the Constitution on the, the, um, the face of the, the center, and she saw the we the people uh, formulation and then the rest of what the, the preamble says. And she just started crying because she recognized, in part because of what we had just seen, in part because what her father had told her about being um, oppressed in the Deep South, uh, she recognized that she kept saying, um, we aren't the people, meaning blacks aren't the people, that that document was talking about. And I think it was really moving to me, but it was also confirmation to me of the difficulty and but also the, the possibilities and promise of, of Philadelphia as a place. Because history is the thing that we sell, 
um, because American history is the thing that drives our tourism as much as the Rocky statue, I suspect. Um, we need to think about and to, to, to make central those places. But then if we, as we have started to do much more in the last 20 or 30 years or so, think about what those wonderful stories that we tell about Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and other people, what those stories don't express, and that is the, the marginalization, the enslavement of black people. If we start thinking about that much more and how that complicates or problematizes or maybe even in certain people's estimation reinforces the notion of the wonder of the United States as, a, as an experiment and as an ideal, um, we are then going to, when we do that, we are going to confront these moments of difficulty and pain and anguish. And that is, I think, part of the challenge of Philadelphia as a space. It certainly was part of the challenge for me as a space and as a city and as my home and that I love being from Philadelphia. I loved walking in the footsteps of Ben Franklin, almost literally. I love being able to say, oh, that's where Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. But I also, as I get older and as I became more uh, well-read, I started to hear what the, about the suffering that black people were going through even during the time that these wonderful and important and transcendent documents were being written. We only have a couple of minutes left, and I, I want to, it's probably a little late to get into this, but you have another chapter on MOVE. And uh, can you talk about how old you were when that happened and what your recollection yeah, I was. Uh, I was in graduate school. Uh, I was uh, living in Grad Towers. I think I was 23 or 24, maybe a little older than 25, maybe. And... I remember watching on television all of this trans, all of what happened on that ridiculous and wonderful and important and traumatic day. Um, interestingly, I, I, you say I have a chapter on MOVE. I sort of have an excuse for not having a chapter on MOVE at the beginning because it's, it's, it's this issue that has troubled me so much that I almost couldn't figure out how to confront it. And I try to talk about it in ways that sort of connect to the notion of trauma itself and the trauma being the thing, the terrible thing that happened that you can't figure out how to get over, but also that you can't get beyond and that you need to figure out how to get beyond. I could never, t I could never force myself to go to Osage Avenue and see either the devastation right after it happened or to see the horrible houses that were put up afterwards and the, the and whatever has happened subsequently. I couldn't go. Um, I thought it would be too difficult for me. And I knew on the one hand if I was going to write a book about Philadelphia in the, 20, the late 20th century that I sort of had to confront it. But I did not want to confront it. I couldn't confront it because I didn't know that I understood it enough or that I, had, that, I, that I had gotten enough beyond the sort of difficulty of it. So instead of a chapter, I have a discussion of uh, the former mayor, Wilson Good, um, and his inquiry interview 
in on the 25th anniversary of MOVE and the fact that he still seems traumatized by what happened um, despite his protestations to the contrary. As you review this book and look at America, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I'm optimistic that the institutions of the United States are infinitely more willing to embrace and accept people who are willing to play by the rules of the country. That is, to be well-educated, well-spoken, to, to uh, respect the police, um, to respect authority, to learn as much as you possibly can, and, and to use your gifts in legal ways. Uh, I am infinitely less positive than I have ever been about the possibilities of people who grew up like I grew up, uh, and which was in, in, in my case in the inner city and in the projects in South Philadelphia, infinitely less positive about their possibilities of moving beyond those impoverished circumstances and having a chance to make it successfully in American society. I think that that is infinitely harder now than it has ever been, uh, in part because of the fact that um, we have criminalized almost everything and we want to imprison almost everybody that we can justify imprisoning. And a lot of those people who wind up being imprisoned who are black boys and to some degree or another girls and certainly women, many of whom deserve it and I wish could be imprisoned even more than they are, but a lot of whom don't. But I think that the impulses that drove King's mission, the notion that integration was essential, the notion that um, black Americans should be able to pursue the possibilities that exist in American society. I think that those impulses are infinitely less available to young boys and girls who are growing up in the inner city than they were when I was growing up. Hate to end on that note, but we are out of time. We've been speaking with Michael Awkward. He's the author of this book, Philadelphia Freedoms, Black American Trauma, Memory, and Culture After King. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.